Hey, how's everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So before we get started, uh, one thing, Dende wanted to make sure to remind everybody to continue praying for his grandmother. So we're going to do that right now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. St. Pius X, pray for us. Okay, so now we can get started. But again, second note before that, do not forget, uh, you're going to see two new things on my website um, that is going to be relevant to this. So let's hop over here onto the Militant Thomist website. Taking a second to load. There you go. First, you're going to see the annotated Thomist. So the annotated Thomist, I come out with daily articles explaining uh, sections of St. Thomas's works, uh, summarizing it, and then also giving notes uh, to all of the difficult terms used in the section. So you could uh, read a section of St. Thomas every single, every single day uh, about, usually I keep it to like five-minute chunks, so a little taste of St. Thomas every single day to uh, help you build the practice of being able to to read them on your own. I thought that was a uh, that was a good um, thing. And then second, uh, I also now have started offering tutoring. So if you need help uh, when it comes, you just want to sit down for like an hour with me and read through some stuff from St. Thomas uh, and have me explain it to you and ask questions and everything like that. Then I can do that. And then I also uh, will will also uh, do philosophy or anything really theology related. But uh, that is about it. So let's get right into it. The video we're going to be uh, looking at today is going to be one by Doug Wilson and James White. I'm sure you all are familiar with James White. Uh, I don't really need to explain him much. But when it comes to Doug Wilson, he is a uh, semi-famous, uh, uh, prominent, uh, that's a better word, prominent evangelical. Uh, he's a Presbyterian. Um, he's kind of the, in the realm of, like, think for, for, you, for you Catholics, think about it like the Anglo-Catholics of, of Presbyterians. They do pedo communion. Uh, they really love uh, traditional forms of education. Um, they they uh, pride themselves on Catholicity when it comes to their thought. So as as you can um, see, these two are not exactly alike because James White is a Reformed Baptist, and as Reformed Baptist as they come, um, Vantillian, everything everything like that. So it is a a bit interesting that these two have made friends because you have a Reformed Baptist and you have a Pado-Communionist uh, Presbyterian. But um, they they did come together for this. And uh, if you're not familiar with the, the controversy, um, there is a certain group of... The Lord see, Jesus... Yes, so true. There's a, a certain group of Reformed people now who call themselves reformed Thomists. So what they do is they take from the 
basically the doctrine of God, doctrine of the Trinity, uh, and then the metaphysics and some of the other uh, low side of philosophy from St. Thomas. And they integrate them into a Protestant system, which is which is traditional. I mean, even as late as Edward, uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was uh, early 18th century, if you read his work on ethics, you'll see him quoting St. Thomas all the time. So early reformers were a huge fan of St. Thomas, and they, uh, the reformed Thomas, are trying to continue in that school of thought. And on the other side, you have uh, these guys named uh, Vantillians, broadly speaking, uh, following a man uh, by the name of Cornelius Van Til, an early 20th century uh, Dutch reformed philosopher who really, really hated St. Thomas Aquinas, really didn't like him. And in, in, in a very real sense, he departed from uh, reformed orthodoxy. So that is that is kind of the the playing field that's going on now. So James White and crew are are crying that you shouldn't uh, return to them, um, and and the other guy and uh, the the reformed Thomas are saying, well, no, actually, this is part of our tradition. So, finally, caught one of your streams live. Good. So I probably won't be taking much Q and A. I mean, if you if you uh, throw a super chat or if one of my YouTube members um, decide to come on, then I will be obliged in justice to uh to respond to it but otherwise i'm gonna keep this pretty clean um and and try to I explain some of the controversy as we go along because i know for for catholic ears this is a bit confusing like why are the protestants trying to talk about saint thomas aquinas but it actually is traditional for them to to do so so let's watch this brief ad this ad's gonna be so cringe i can already tell oh, pure flicks let's see Yes, started from the beginning. This is looking for followers who realize that they are sinners and need a savior. So true, King. Play the flute. That we can motivate you to get serious about the Lord. Come on, so man. So true. You really think that we want to read the Bible? How about you guys? Anyone want to read the Bible? Bro. <laughs> well, at least you know what you're up against. They're so cringe. I really like our, our new guy. He's too preachy. Turn me off already. What's this? It's just something Brandon gave to us. The white flag is supposed to symbolize us surrendering our lives to the Lord. So and true. Said, when you feel committed to raise the flag up. So why haven't you put up the flag? Yes, girl. I think there's something wrong with one of the fry machines. Which one? Mr. Weber is so stupid. He has no clue. They're just not serious so about true. If there even is a commitment. Welcome to. Okay, yeah, I'm tired of tired of watching that. I, I'm, I'm telling you, those advertisements are so cringy. Like, could evangelicals, um, could they come out with, like, better movies? Like, they're all terrible. Like, we got, like, Passion of Christ and stuff like that. Come on now. Protestants, you got pure flicks. Like, you, you guys really should be doing better in that regard. It's really cringe. Okay. So, I will begin. I'm going to put this on 1.25 speed. Because otherwise, I don't think I'm going to make it through. Quality, no, we need 1080. You got good quality on this. 1.25. There you go. And let's have some fun. Welcome to a, another Sweater Vest Dialogue. James, good to have you here in Moscow. It is good to be here. We've always done these. In fact, sometimes I can't even see you. 
Right. So sort of, you can, normally I think you can see me, Yeah, yeah uh, I can. But, but sometimes I'm just staring at a camera right. trying to imagine your facial expression. So we arranged for you to come to Moscow to prove to one another that we do exist. We do exist. That's right. That's right. We both wear sweater vests. In, in, in non-Gnostic fashion. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we had lunch today and we discussed uh, something we wanted to tackle and we'll see how, see how much uh, time this fills up. Um, and, uh, in recent years, let's say the last decade or so, there's been a strong resurgence in reformed evangelical circles of Thomism. Right. I don't know if it's fair to say like the last decade. I mean, when it comes to like the translation of of Francis Turretin, that was back in the 90s. And then R.C. Sproul has been saying this for a really long time. So I don't, I don't know if this is like a fringe group in the last 10 years. I don't think that's exactly fair. I think the, the historically speaking, the real fringe group are, are these guys. Okay, um, and the Thomists in on in Protestant circles have been around forever. Right, so true. Uh, but this is a new and aggressive form of Thomism. I, I don't I don't think so. Um, I mean, if you read like Owen when he talks about doctrine of God, or really really any of those guys when they talk about doctrine of God, it's very clear that when it comes to Trinitarian theology and doctrine of God, that they are hardcore Thomists isn't anything to, there, there's no moderating force about it. Especially being identified as classical theism. Right. It so it's, it's a, they, they sort of decided that uh, Thomas's formulations are classical theism and that this, the idea is this was actually just simply carried directly into the Reformation. All the reformers just accepted all of this. And therefore, if we really want to be confessional, then we have to go the same, the same direction with these specific definitions of doctrines that honestly, a lot of people have probably never even heard of. Right. But they're now being presented as being absolutely necessary for theological orthodoxy. And in reform circles, and this is especially important for you and I, you and I have debated a number of the same people. Um, my, I, I still get a little bit of a tick when I think of my debates with Dan Barker um, <laughs> and things like that. But we approach these things in, in very similar fashion as far as being very much indebted to the thought of Cornelius Van Til, right. uh, Greg Bonson, um, and hence presuppositionalism is being tied in with this as a universal something to be rejected right by the classical theists so the um just to be clear well, well yeah because there's when it comes to presuppositionalism uh the the issue isn't uh talking about our authorities like yes obviously we need to talk about our authorities the the big issue comes in when it comes to one um natural law and then two when it comes into uh, epistemology uh, it there there is there is a strong like Kantian idealist flavor to a lot of this um, Vantillian uh, presuppositionalist thought. So the, the, the issue the issue of, of course we of course we are going to reject it by we I mean Thomas at large, whether uh, Catholic real Thomas or a reformed fake Thomas. I'm just, that was that was a joke. So don't freak out. So. Um, yeah, uh, it's 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 not surprising uh, that that there's this tension uh, right there between the two. Here we, uh, we would say, within the confines of the great historic creeds, you've written a book on the Trinity, mm -hmm. the Forgotten Trinity, uh, which is straight up the middle orthodox classic um, Trinitarian theology. I don't think so. Used to I, think so until the last to, few weeks. Uh, yeah, yeah, until the last few weeks. <laughs> well, used to think so, and and everybody else thought so. Right, back in the, right. So right, right. it was it was received. Uh, when was that published? Ninety eight. Ninety eight. So, um, and the thing with James White's Forgotten Trinity, 
is um it it takes a very uh biblicist line and i don't mean that in a derogative sense but it takes a um a hardcore sticking to biblical language and concepts type turn and that's uh not the worst thing you can do but obviously when it comes to our our language about the trinity um how do, how do i put this when it comes to the language about uh the trinity it it has evolved not in, in that the concepts have evolved because obviously the apostolic deposit uh, remains the same but definitionally in being able to define certain terms and concepts against the abuse of language by heretics which is why it's important to use domestic language um it, it's important to use language like inseparable operations and and the like which he's going to talk about later or relative opposition which i'm, I'm sure uh, from some of the comments they made I don't, I don't even think they they know what those what those concepts are so i will continue all those years it was okay this is a standard classical evangelical work on the trinity and then all of a sudden that's not good enough it's like the dial uh, the dial of orthodoxy got turned up to 11. So mm -hmm. true. And with uniquely Thomist takes on certain things. Well, and a lot of this stuff is not uniquely. I mean, what are they talking about? It's a Trinitarian takes that are uniquely Thomist. I'm, I'm sure they aren't talking about like uh, whether whether um, relative opposition is sufficient uh, or is necessary for distinguishing the persons of the Trinity or anything like that. Like, what what, what do you mean uniquely Thomist takes? This that, That's like a very odd, con, uh, very, very odd comment to me where I can barely think of anything in Trinitarian theology where there's huge differences that these guys would know about uh, among the scholastics. I, I have no idea what you're talking about with uniquely Thomistic takes. In a minute, we'll get into the specifics, the specifics of some of that. Right. But I wanted to begin by saying, we're not saying that if you're a Thomist, you have to be heterodox. We're saying that Thomism doesn't, can't do any claim jumping here, where there's a stream of orthodox, um, um, received orthodox understanding of the nature of God and so forth and variations and differences mm -hmm. with between the orthodox right right and we would have disagreement we would agree with the Thomists in certain areas right we would both affirm the simplicity of God for example right maybe not as deeply as he would think we should right because <laughs> we will need to get into that as, right. as to exactly what simplicity is and how far you can go with that right but that goes back to the Thomist definitions so or this or we might say strict Thomist definitions right right this is also arbitrary. I mean, the, the, the Thomists are defining it because what you guys need to understand when it comes to uh, Protestant orthodoxy, just like we would have a, a, a magisterium, they, in a certain sense, have a magisterium, which is the, the confessional documents in which they're bound by. All, all of the confessional authors writing the chapters on the Trinity or the doctrine of God in their confessions would have held to the strict Thomistic definitions. Like I, I don't know why you're uh, they're acting like this is some sort of novelty that uh, that nobody's ever heard of when it comes to uh, saying that these are the definitions whereby we run by um, in our uh, in our confessional documents. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. And the and the embracing of his metaphysics, right? Which I think is which also, <laughs> it, uh, um, you, you have to recognize there's a there's a uh, I can never pronounce his last name. I think it's. Digsma, I, I, I never can. Uh, Matthew Pearson one time pronounced his last name to me. There's a good Protestant scholar right now uh, showing that basically uh, it, it is it, it was for the first 
about two centuries of Protestant thought, the, uh, the metaphysics that were taught in Reformed schools and then also by extension Lutheran schools was basically the traditional uh, medieval ideal <clears throat> of a commentary on the metaphysics or some sort of uh, manual that would uh, uh, teach the same thing that, that basically St. Thomas would teach. Um, it, it is really, really weird to, to, to see them uh, talking like that there's some like metaphysical weirdness going on with them. No, no, no. It's just what, uh, broadly speaking, I'm, I'm using Thomistic metaphysics because they, they would identify Thomistic metaphysics as broadly um, Christian Aristotelianism. So we're not even up. Uh, so to them, Scotist metaphysics is going to be Thomistic metaphysics. So that's a sense in which I'm using it in. Basically, it's just the metaphysics that almost everybody held to during, during that era. Um, the Cartesians were uh, universally condemned. Uh, it, it's like Petrus von Maastricht. He had the uh, the gangrene of of Cartesian invention. They the uh, the metaphysics of non Thomistic uh, and again Thomistic in the broad uh, Aristotelian sense. The the Thomistic uh, metaphysics was held to be Christian metaphysics. Is where one of the big breaking points really is which is how so it's not what he concludes what thomas not what Com thomas concludes but how he gets there. how he got there right. um, so what's going on with that right. so um we're not trying to run uh thomists per se out of the camp of the orthodox but we do want to and, and for this initial discussion i would also like to add how arbitrary all of this is like you're 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 two guys like same with me you're, you're two guys on youtube like what kind of confessionally binding force do you have to make these judgments of oh I don't I don't think this or that should be should be in or outside of the realms of orthodoxy and I don't think this or that should be the way in which we're defining these terms like why why don't you just use the the confessions that you were bound by in your ordinations or if you're Doug Wilson uh, non ordination to affirm and loudly that some of this sectarian insistence on every last one of their definitions. Um, is going to be problematic. It's going to be deeply problematic, and it's going to lead to some serious <clears throat> issues in regards. I, I would say not only to uh, our our fellowship with one another, but also with apologetics. How the kind of answers we're going to be giving, and especially at this time with secularism, it would seem to me this is the time where presuppositional emphasis upon foundational issues is so vitally important. Right. We can't go back to ceding to rebellious man the ground that I think Thomas did cede to the rebellious man. Right. So let's let's get into to some specific areas um how would you how would you take or interpret a strict or hard thomist approach to simplicity okay well where we come from here is it's, it's interesting um, about 20 years ago i wrote an article for ligonier on simplicity on on the issue and really on monotheism simplicity and i defined it then as the doctrine that god is not made up of parts that you cannot divide the being of God up into different elements and different parts so that you've got his uh, omniscience and you've got his omnipresence and you've got his uh, love and his mercy and so on and so forth, so that he is a conglomerate where he is made up of multiple different parts. God's being is simple in the sense that it is pure and indivisible. Right. And that's really important. A lot of Christians do misunderstand thinking that the son is one third of God and the spirit is one third of God and so on and so forth. And so that I think most people can understand and can see that this is not just simply a situation of the church outside of scripture saying you need to believe this. 
this comes from first order level understanding of what the scripture teaches about God, the harmony of his attributes, things like that. Right. So most of it. So <clears throat> something I wanted to wanted to point out right there, uh, that when it comes to divine simplicity, James White is is pointing to sacred scripture. And while uh, certainly divine simplicity is a consequence of of many uh, verses in sacred scripture, simplicity can be known by reason. It's, it's not something in which one needs to dive into the scriptures to know. And why, why that's important <clears throat> is because it comes down to a lot of uh, James White's um, uh, Vantillian notion of natural theology and the ability of man to know certain things about, uh, the, about God from creation and not necessarily uh, through special revelation. So that's that's something which is going to come through time and time again, where he's going to talk about these issues of basic natural revelation. And then he's going to uh, conflate um, special revelation with those issues and say, well, we, we can't know. Uh, scripture doesn't talk about this or that. But I would respond. It just has to do with the basic uh, concept being communicated when we use the term God, when we use the term divinity. These, the, these are the things that we mean uh, by that term, that a, a being which is uh, self-subsistent, a being which is um, simple, a being which is um, indivisible, a being which is uh, infinite. All of these various negative names are things in which we can know by negating certain created imperfections um, and then saying that God does not have these things. So very important. These are things of which we can know through natural revelation. But um, so, so it, it's not a case of the church imposing um, something on the believer that is outside of scripture. The church is imposing something which is assumed by the scriptural authors themselves. This would go fine. No problem. Yeah, yeah. But what is now being emphasized, especially in, in my circles, since about 2015, maybe a little bit earlier than that, but really starting to get ahead of steam, is the assertion, and this is discussed by people like Turretin. Calvin wasn't big on it, but Turretin and the more reformed scholastic of the second, third yeah. generations, they do discuss these things, obviously. Uh, no, Calvin, Calvin still uh, discussed whether God was with or without parts. So, Is the assertion that the attributes of God in God, ad intra is the Latin phrase, that the attributes of God are one, and are to be not to be distinguished. God does not distinguish uh, internally between uh, his wrath and his love, uh, or his justice and his love. I guess is a better yeah, term. Okay, uh, or between omniscience. His justice is his love, and exactly. his, lo his love uh, is his justice, and his love is his omniscience, uh, and his love is his omnipresence. The things that that make these things even. Man, I you, you guys are lucky that I uh, I'm putting it in for the. Gosh, this is terrible. Okay, let's do this again. Prima pars. Um, question, I think it's 12. No, question 13. I'll get him next time, boys. Oh, man. So, uh, question 13, article 4. Let's pull that up real quick. If you if you ever seen me talk about simplicity, you will remember that I always bring up this article because the uh, said contra just says it all. So whether 
whether names applied to God are synonymous. Interesting. This seems to be exactly what James Wood is talking about. Whether names applied to God are synonymous. Said Contra, all synonyms united with each other are redundant, as we say vesture clothing. Therefore, if all names applied to God are synonyms, synonymous, we cannot properly say good God or the like. And yet it is written, O most mighty, great, and powerful, the Lord of hosts is thy name. And then I answer that, these names spoken of God are not synonymous. There you go. That wasn't that wasn't supremely difficult. So what James White is misunderstanding here is James White is conflating a real versus a virtual distinction. So a virtual distinction, uh, oh, really a virtual distinction and a nominal distinction. So um, the, the virtual distinction is described as a distinction of reason reasoned. And then a nominal distinction is described as a distinction of reason reasoning. So with the distinction of reason reasoned, there's what's called a fundamentum in re. So there's a foundation in the thing whereby we can predicate this distinction. Whereas uh, in the distinction of reason reasoning, we are merely um, uh, ar arbitrarily uh, distinguishing between two things like um, can't even think of a, a nominal distinction, v vesture and clothing, for example. But actually when we talk about God's love and God's justice, God's love is his essence. There's a virtual distinction, precisely a, uh, a minor virtual distinction, a major virtual distinction. I got the two mixed up. Major virtual distinction between the two. And God's uh, justice and his essence, again, not really distinct, but only virtually distinct. So they're, they're, not, they're not something which is synonymous. We can still distinguish uh, between the two in our intellects. Can't stay for this, but I'm glad to respond to that video. Thank you, thank you. So yeah, um, it, it, this is this is really bread and butter uh, simplicity right here. To not make the silly mistake of saying that we think that all of the attributes of God are synonymous or anything silly like that. Not at all what we're saying. Not at all what we're saying. Understandable. And for me, one important part: these attributes interact with each other. One of the most beautiful things of seeing the cross is recognizing you're seeing the love of God and the holiness of God so at true. the exact same time. Right. But if they're the same attribute, then we can't understand what's going on there. <laughs> they're not the same attribute. Oh, my goodness. Because strictly speaking, an attribute is is something of a, of a certain name whereby we signify uh, something as being analogously true. Uh, in Duina, so in in the, uh, the divinity. So I, I mean, how how could we say that these various uh, significations are synonymous? That's that, that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's not what we say. So internally to God, we are told we must believe that these attributes are all one. And here's the reason. Now, now by the way, add extra outside of God, they are different, and we are to distinguish between them. And in fact, we glorify God by distinguishing them. But God doesn't glorify. Right. God isn't glorified by that internally. Is, is basically what's being said. Right. And so here's here, here's the problem. When you when you think about what is being said about the attributes being the same, I can say easily all the attributes are harmonious. Yeah. They are they they are not parts. But what's being forced on us is we don't a, stack them up exactly. Right. But what's being forced on us is a metaphysical assumption that comes from Thomas, and part of it comes 
Oh, it's about to get really bad, boys. So from before Thomas to somebody yeah. else named yeah. Aristotle. Yeah. And the idea is, and some people may have heard of this idea before, and this is how I explained it to you, is uh, when we think about the ontological argument, which is an argument I don't like to think about very often because I only have so much Advil with me while I'm traveling. Um, <laughs> but, but if you've thought about the argument itself, an essence of it is the being greater than which none can be conceived. The idea of thinking of something in that metaphysical system means that it actually exists. Uh, it's concrete in an argument type sense. I successfully uh, conceived of it. So there's, um, I'll, I'll just make this distinction for you guys real quick. So there's what's called um, beings of reason and then real beings. Real beings are something which is posited as existing outside of the intellect and beings of reason are things in which um, are uh, conceived by the intellect. So things like genus and species, like con concepts like that, which we are um, imposing on the, on the outside of uh, world with having some foundation in the outside world. But just because it's something which is conceived does not mean it exists in reality. Like I can, I can think of a unicorn, James White, but, <laughs> but the medievals wouldn't think like, how dumb do you think they are? Do you think they were just sitting around like, Oh, I'm going to think about me having a million dollars. Oh, it exists. We we're rich boys. Like, come on now. This is, this is just ridiculous. They're making, they're making us look like idiots on purpose. Greater than which none can be conceived. The idea of thinking of something in that metaphysical system means that it actually exists. <laughs> oh, no. That category becomes concrete in an argument type sense. If I successfully conceived of it, then it is that way. And it can be put into the argument as a valid element. Bro, what, what do they think we are? Like, <laughs> like some sort of um, like postmodernist uh, gender theorists. If I think of myself as a woman, I'm a woman. Like, hey, come on, this is like, they can't, I, they can't honestly believe this. This is what we think. Like, come on now. This is just, this is terrible. I don't, I don't think I'm going to make through the whole 40 minute video. I'm going to try. I will try. I promise you guys that. Of the argument. So if I can conceive of God's attributes, then they become separate parts, which then Bro. becomes a denial of God's simplicity. Right. So I am not to conceive of God's attributes internally to him as having any difference from one another, or I am making him a composite being oh and denying gosh. the doctrine of simplicity. Now, how, how would the, what would the response be if I said, well, I conceive of the father and the son and the spirit as different. That is the primary, um, argument that they want to push back against and respond to is they've written entire books on it. Thomas liked to write books yeah. just like Thomas did. So they sort of, <laughs> like father, like children, uh, it sort of, sort of goes together. Um, and in that instance, you get into extremely complicated discussions about how subsistences are not the same as attributes would be if they had this kind of reality. Distinction. Oh my gosh. An attribute is a certain um, note of an essence <clears throat> and in god it's it's an essential uh, something which is essential but we can have accidental notes but a subsistence is a very uh, a, a certain uh, individual substance of a rational nature or really uh, technically that would be properly speaking a person but um a certain individual substance oh man that so there's always a way to make a a philosophical distinction between you know one aspect or another but i'll leave it to the thomas to explain exactly how they deal with that because it does have applications to other things once you have this idea of simplicity not just what you and i would agree that god's being is not composed of different parts um once you have the further assertion of the ad intra sameness then that starts having impact in other areas and one of the areas that i'm most concerned about is in trinitarian theology and in the relationship of the divine persons right because 
even if you say, well, Father, Son, and Spirit are d distinct subsistences to be sharply distinguished from attributes, right. even if you do that, and then you have complicated math, which which is like a June bug doing quantum physics. <laughs> look, look at us go describing the internal workings of God. Uh, so and, and at some point, somebody goes, do you think Paul really intended this? You know, uh, again, um, this is this is really a a a weird sort of confusion with the task of a theolo of the theologian. So the the scholastic theologian, he is uh, that there there are certain um, certain conclusions with which follow from certain premises, which are because the conclusion is contained in the premise. So if something is contained uh, in the premise in sacred scripture, then we can rightly draw the conclusion through reason. I mean, this is in Turretin's Prolegomena, if you look at his, his uh, Institutes of Eclectic Theology. And if you're Catholic, don't read that because uh, you shouldn't be reading the works of heretics. But um, if you're Protestant, read that all you want. And he has a section specifically treating of how reason can be used in theology to, to bring about um, certain uh, new uh uh, conclusions, which are really just, uh, which are really just um, definitional, definitionally um, more uh, precise uh, formulations of what was already contained in the apostolic deposit. So, so again, uh, whether whether Paul intended this directly or not, it uh, it really does not uh, concern me. Oh, did you think this is really? You really have to start asking. This is a question we didn't discuss this before. This is a question I have. How far can we go past the headlights of Scripture? Yeah. I mean, how far? Because Calvin, Calvin was when God makes an end of speaking, we need to make make an end of speaking. And Paul says, "I resolve not to go beyond what is written." Right. And Edwards, Gershner, Gershner, who's a huge Edwards fan, obviously, right. said that Edwards tried to figure out the will of Adam. Yeah, I don't really care about that, but uh, I just want to make a comment on uh, the 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 fact that he said that we were going beyond uh, scripture. I mean, in a sense, yes, we're going beyond scripture in bringing about certain new conclusions, but we're not going beyond uh, what was already contained there since, again, the uh, conclusions are contained in the premises. And uh, I thought this perfect summary. Oh, what did I make a perfect summary of? I need to like clip that or something. Okay. So, um, Yeah, th this is basically it. James White will make 20 different distinctions between God's will. Why can't Thomas make distinctions and predications? Exactly. exactly. Every, everybody does it. Everybody does it. Stop pretending like you don't do it. Everybody does. Like, come on now, dude. Without having the light of scripture and ended up in a massive contradiction. So Edwards is a brilliant guy. But once you get past the headlights of scripture, you can you just have to start making it up as you're going. And that's right. that's really one of the questions we have to ask here. Wait, yes. how do you know it's a contradiction if it's not uh, contained in scripture, dude? Because the, the conclusions which you draw from other uh, premises revealed in scripture are contrary to the premise that they drew. Again, like everybody has to do this. So if someone says, um, you're taking your theology exam, and yeah, if you have to pass this to get out of seminary, and the last question is, what was God thinking about ten minutes before He made the world? <laughs> you need to, if you write. If we you can write, ask our studio audience. If you write down anything other than we don't know, and it's impudent to ask. That's exactly right. 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 Um, then you fail. If you say, "Well, man, let me work on that," <laughs> you can do revelation. Uh, no, that's that's pretty dangerous. And right? I've I've uh, had my view reinforced many times that smart people cause most of the problems in the world. Um, they think they are up to things that, that they, they're, really they, not they, they're just not really up they're to really up or things that we and, and it's not that we're saying oh no we're up to it and you, you belong to the wrong party right we're saying some of these things you're raising nobody's up to 
and the and, and the, Thomas wasn't up to it. Right. That's where some of them are like, he was so far beyond us that we simply have to trust that, that yeah. he was there. And and that's where I go. Look, he was brilliant. No one is sitting here saying that anybody who can write the massive amounts of in the time frame that he had in the day that he lived, yeah. all that's amazing. That's fine. But we also have to sit back and go, he he was the quintessential definer of what became the theology of the Council of Trent. Uh, it's th this sort of like humble anti-intellectualism that, that's just such a cope like if if you can't understand it just say that and don't talk about it like this is this is all such a cope all of it yeah you know i mean you, you just have to admit that he wrote other stuff about man uh, and our anthropology that was anything but biblical so um going back to the subsistences right. and the attributes we make a distinction between them but the father loves the son right and that's an oh, oh this is <laughs> this is my favorite part boys this, this is my favorite part uh, and our anthropology that was anything but biblical so um going back to the subsistences right. and the attributes we make a distinction between them but the father loves the son right and that's an attribute right the father loves the son uh, and this is edwards the father loves the son and augustine um the father loves the son the son returns that love mm -hmm. and that love is itself the spirit right the, the, that was, that was how, yeah that's, that's how they construed it but love okay so so this man big expert in thomism wants to uh wants to debunk all of us he, he doesn't know the difference between essential and notional love like you, you don't think we didn't think of that like huh oh the essential love of god is the holy spirit um hmm, what are we gonna say like no we don't believe that when it comes to us labeling the holy spirit as love it is because the um the the holy spirit is the terminus of the procession uh for uh according to the will just as the son is called uh word or uh image um because he uh, proceeds from the intellect of god yeah, it's like you you didn't think that we didn't think of this like uh, did you think we identify the holy spirit with the essential love of god we don't and when we speak of the uh, so, so there's a certain um I guess I'll explain this, that from the will of God, there's there's that um, uh, eternal, ineffable procession by way of will of the of the Holy Spirit. That that's that's what occurs with the procession of the spirit. But when we refer to the love of God, we're referring to a certain um, inclination of his will, not the the uh, the, the certain uh, terminus which flows and proceeds uh, eternally. Uh, from the will that, that's complete, completely different things completely different things it's just crazy that that he's trying to refute this right now and it's it's also very sad that i have to explain what jonathan edwards said to a uh, to, to a protestant who likes reading jonathan edwards the love between the father and the son is an attribute right and if i distinguish oh my gosh uh is saying the holy spirit's an attribute oh my gosh i'm gonna need like uh some something to finish this uh, hold on, boys. I'll be back in a second.
Okay, I'm back. Just need a little break. Grab myself a beer. So, let us continue now. This has been. This has just been brutal. I, I don't know. I don't know how how I'm gonna make it. Oh man. That's how they construed it. But love, the love between the father and the son, is an attribute. Oh my gosh. Right? And if I distinguish. Uh, so the father has wrath toward the son. What? what intra? If it's all the same. It's... Now, now we're now we're touching upon another concept that again most people have not heard of, uh, but inseparable operations, which flows out of the extended concept of simplicity, and that is the idea. And this is, again is what the Thomas are are, are promoting right now. It actually uh, inseparable operations doesn't have anything to do with simplicity. It has to do with the fact that God has one will. That. If, if you deny inseparable operations, you just deny that um, that God has one will and you're a tritheist. Uh, and that is the idea that uh, add extra, so outside of God, out in the, out in the world, out in the creation, uh, any action of God is the action of all divine persons. Now, on one level, you can go, well, okay, if what you mean by that is that the Son always acts in perfect harmony with the Father. Right? <laughs> no, the that's not what you mean by that. The Son, and that god is accomplishing his decree in everything mm -hmm. that's pretty easy yeah, amen yeah. we can all say amen and go home and sing and, and do fun stuff um but it's being taken beyond that it's, it's this is the problem it's, it's taking it to one point okay but once you push beyond that let me just read you one thomist's uh, statement on this very very issue that gives you an idea god is and this was uh joshua summer that he's reading a tweet so i don't know why you don't just read like a book or something like come on you're reading some dude's tweet about this like it, i mean if it was the militant thomist uh, twitter feed i'd get it but just reading just random tweets you find on Twitter. Josh Summer's a good guy, though. Very smart. Love. And this love is Father, Son, and Spirit. There is no giving and receiving in God from one person to another, because such giving and receiving would imply one person has something the other does not. Therefore, there is no giving of love from one person to another, because Father, Son, and Spirit are the one love, and this love is God. I, I don't even know how to fully understand what's being said unless what unless the idea is, since God is love, then by definition, the persons are love, and therefore you could not add love to love, I guess. Right. At which point I simply say, where, where is this coming from? If we can't speak as the scriptures speak, we've let something really get in the way, and that's not going to help edify anybody. So if I, if I, but if I were talking to a Muslim, and I was... Oh, this, this is also another winner, <laughs> winner moment. But before that, uh, I'll tell you where it's coming from. And I, I would have to ask uh, Josh a little bit more what he means, because that could be a, a troubling statement as if you're denying that there's eternal processions, but I'm sure that's not what he was doing. I'm sure he's talking about um, that there isn't uh, this sort of like throwing, throwing love at each other and stuff like that. There, there is an eternal and essential relationship of, um, of the, the donation of essence from the father to the son, and then from the, from the father uh, through the son to the spirit. If, if that's what he's meaning. Uh, but but what he's saying is there's one essence of God and love is an attribute of that essence and it's shared between the three. So uh, there isn't this need to just like, um, to, as if you're like passing love from essence to essence or anything like that. In the way. And that's not going to help edify. Anybody. So if I, if I, but if I were talking to a Muslim and I would say <laughs> John's confession that God is love, right? Is love not not God is benevolent for the time being to the world, right. but the the Muslim has to confess that Allah is inscrutable, right? Uh, God, Allah does not reveal Himself; He so, reveals His will. So right? true. Right? So He exactly reveals His will, and we saying. obey His will. So a Muslim is someone who submits to God's 
articulated will. Uh, the Christian can say, no, when we go up to the to worship God, the triune God, he is one who the father loves the son and the son loves the father and they've loved each other from for, all, for, for all eternity. Uh, and there's a lover and a, a beloved and a spirit of love between them. And we don't understand it other than to say there must be a lover and a beloved and and it's real love and it's, it's it, it can't love. be less than the love that we experience right it has to be greater than that but if you if you blur it all together such that it's all the same you've got allah right yeah i, I would hope at least Thomas would not have the <laughs> other aspect <laughs> what are you talking about i i'm so i'm so confused right now what is he talking about like what is he going on this this is so hard to listen to not your commentary thank you can i get on this i'd also like to roast oh yeah 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 John Fisher, sorry it took me so long to respond. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you the invite link. This is this is uh, brutal. Alhamdulillah, <laughs> we are Muslims, Wagner. <laughs> oh my goodness, the the Allah argument. Oh the uh, the Richard of Saint Victor argument. I'm actually not familiar with uh with. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that—that's what you mean, by John Fisher. How's it going, my dude? Uh, not too bad. You got me at a good time. I got home from work just like forty minutes ago. Long time no see. Oh, I know. No see. I know. Well, I uh, just came in here because I can't wait to uh, roast these Calvinists. Yeah. Or, and tritheists, apparently. Oh yeah, this is this is just. I mean, this has been painful, right? This has just been like. It, it just pains me to watch this video. Uh, like, I, I wouldn't, I, I would not subscribe to everything. I would not subscribe myself to Thomism because yeah. I, I am not smart enough. To, <laughs> I, I, I am not, I'm not smart enough to say, and well read enough to say I can agree or disagree with St. Thomas. I would say that I have not assented to it, but I would say a lot of this stuff I do assent to. Yeah, I don't ascend to without at least consulting what Thomas and Thomists have to say and considering their side as they formulate it. So I have a lot of respect for the school of thought. Yeah, because I mean the I the, doing it dirty. the way that the the way that the Leonine um, revival of Thomism basically worked is they were like, okay, you. Uh, this is how I try to try to explain it to like because on, on the one end we can't say that. Um, that like it's completely inadmissible to be anything but a Thomist philosophically mm -hmm. speaking. Right, right. But on the other hand, we have to say that there's something special about um, about Saint Thomas and his thought. So the the church the church defers but doesn't bind us when it comes to uh, the thought of Saint Thomas. So yeah, so yes, this is this is really a, a, a very um, intense strike against us. We we, we can't just can't just sit here and be like okay james white we're just gonna let you let you say that because we think of something because we think of something that it exists like like apparently that's what saint thomas taught what uh <clears throat> yeah in any case um thomas's war like i'll say this much saint thomas aquinas's thought is still really well regarded today they're still defenders of many of his art of many if not his arguments then reformulations of his arguments yeah. in fact you can even make Heck, even today, I thought of a way of defending, a way of formulating the fourth way using just uh, modern, more rationalistic notions like the PSR and, and things like that from the Enlightenment rationalists, as opposed to the more Aristotelian philosophy of Aquinas. Uh, but it still involves degrees of perfection. 
It still involves possible worlds. Uh, sorry, it still involves degrees of perfection. It still uh, refers to ways the world potentially could have been. So, like, does it mean that, um, like, just because you have to agree word for word? No, but you're you're definitely throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And as for this whole, what do we do when we talk to the Muslims? Like <laughs> St. Thomas I, wrote a whole book against that. So, I mean, yeah. just read Summa Contra Gentiles, dude. Just read, read Orationibus Fide. Like, like, come on. Like, he, he wrote against Muslims. Like, I, I don't know what he's trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Well, we need to say to Muslims that our God really... Actually, I also do. I do like a lot of um, the post-millennial stuff. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a toasty posty. Yeah, I've, I've uh, outed myself here. I think Saint Augustine was a post-millennialist. The guy who convinced me of it was a reform guy known as Kenneth Gentry Jr. The guy is like wicked smart. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue on the video. Uh, see if we can uh, survive through these uh, last. 20 or so minutes back to all of to where he is uh inconsistent so in other words he's arbitrary right uh, at least that part wouldn't be there which is dealing with muslims is one of the hardest things to deal with is the heartbreak of seeing someone who embraces that idea of god but again oh, Muslim, that's not universal in islam either that's uh what, what school of islam is it that uh that that has that when it comes to the will of god being uh basically like ultra deterministic i think the ashari are the people who hold to that one but i'm um, Again, I think we'd have to ask our friend Al, our buddy um, Bonaventure, about that one. He yeah, knows that yeah. much more than we do. Um, yeah, like, that's my guess. But I, I thought James White was like Mister, like Mister uh, King of the Mo King King of the Muslims, King oh, of the I, Arabs over there. I, I, I mean, that's I thought that was his one of his things. Is he learned Arabic and everything also, to try to defeat Muslims. He doesn't also, even know like basic distinctives between different schools of Muslim thought. I would also like to throw in there that this is an Arme this is basically the same argument Armenians give Calvinists. What? Yeah. what? Uh, uh, God could just elect from the beginning of time who is elect and who is reprobated to hell before the consequences of our actions. Like that's yeah, just that's basically that. Islam, dude. Basically, Calvinist God equal Muslim. Like it's yeah. kind of funny saying that about Thomas now. Yeah, really. It's uh, it, it it is pretty hilarious. Alhamdulillah, we are Muslims. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let, let's let's try to survive this. But yeah, we don't have in this system, as far as I can see, the ability to make the kind of argument that Christians have for a long time, uh, that the Scriptures reveal to us divine persons who have a fullness of relationship, so that when the the Father sends the Son, that is a that is an act that itself is not only loving but it's 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 sacrificial. Now, the first time I started to bump first, into wait, wait. anything the like this under the Thomas. Under the Thomistic systems, each person is a subsistent relation. Yes. Hence, hence, not only do they have that, they are that. In fact, yeah, literally, they are relations. They are subsistent relations. Yes. Yeah, I mean. So, yeah, um, we 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 don't. Uh, we're basically. Well, I think he um, he thought we were. Um, he thought we were basically like uh, Sibelians. I I think uh, James White called us modalists one time. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, he needs to note that um, the essence, since the essence constitutes each relation, the relations themselves, while remaining distinct from one another, they themselves have the fullness of the essence. So exactly. each, of them, each of them are fully God, while at the same time remaining distinct in relation, because the relations themselves aren't aren't identical with each other, yes. but are but are identical 
with to the essence. Yeah. And by identical, we're we're glossing that there is there's still a virtual distinction between the essence and then the each one of the persons. But as Saint Thomas notes, when you have X being virtually distinct from Y, and then mm -hmm. Y virtually distinct from Z, X is actually really distinct from from Z. Like if we think about a certain motion, and then we think of action and passion, mm -hmm. action is only virtually distinct from the motion. And mm -hmm. passion is only virtually distinct from the uh, from the motion, but action and passion are actually really distinct from one another. Yeah, he um, he in, he gets that uh, reading from um, Aristotle, and and he utilizes Aristotle as kind of a means for arguing that uh, you know there are these non-Euclidean relations. Uh, mm -hmm. That is just because a is just because a is equal to b and b is equal to c, therefore it doesn't mean a is equal to c. So, so Thomas does this as a justification. Even in modern philosophy, there is a notion of more relativized identities. So, for example, let's say I have, a, a, let's say I have a, a uh, let's say I have this piece of wood here. It's fashioned right now into a drumstick, and let's say I take this drum, this wood, uh, the exact same area, and I fashion it into something else. I could say that. Uh, the drumstick is the same as the wood, and the wood is the same as whatever it's later going to constitute. But it doesn't mean one is going. The drumstick is going to be the same as what the wood later constitutes because they're two different things. God is just simultaneous. The God is just simultaneously constituting three relations that are just not identical. Whereas you know, more finite things uh, don't have that. They can only constitute one thing at a time. And they're and they require multiple components to compose, whereas God is just one simple entity who doesn't require parts to compose. He just is uh, the underlying basis for that composition. That's the main difference here. Um, you know, I'm not butchering Thomistic philosophy here, am I? No, you're good. You're good. Okay. Cool. It's it's sacrificial. Now, the first time I started to bump into anything like this was. Um, when uh, evangelicals began answering feminists. This, the feminists said that uh, we disparage women, we despise women, we're misogynistic because, because wives have to submit to their husbands. And for many years, sort of a chestnut uh, answer, uh, uh, you know, just a, an, uh, what a truism that we bring out. No, no, no. In Christian theology, submission does not, equate, does not equal inferiority. And, and we see this because we see in the, within the Godhead, the father sends the son into the world. So there's authority and submission in the Godhead. Now, I've said that for many years without anybody squawking. And then probably roughly within the same time period you're talking about, uh, uh, people started saying, no, that's, uh, there's, that's deeply problematic. Mm -hmm. Now, I grant that there are many places where the Father's love for the Son is the Father's love for the incarnate Son, which affects the, the whole thing. And authority, the incarnate Son submits to the will of the Father in Gethsemane and goes to the cross. But the issue is... Again, odd info within. Um, they're, they're they're assuming monothelitism right here. Did, did you hear that? Wait for it. Well, the Father in Gethsemane and affects the the whole thing. And authority, the incarnate Son submits to the will of the Father in Gethsemane and goes. They're they're assuming monothelitism. Like this is they're, really they're, really getting in some weird waters. Uh, when your Trinitarian theology gets muggy, soon your Christology gets muggy. Yeah, because. Because when it comes to uh, the the issue of submission, I mean, submission is a deference of the will of one to the will of another, um, and improperly, and, and again, 
plenty of negations need to be made, but improperly, we can actually speak of submission of the son to the father in that, uh, in our comprehension of the relation of an external mission of the son being sent by the father, uh, we can improperly, again, improperly call that submission. We can't properly call that submission because properly speaking, the submission is the deference of one will to the another will. And there's only one will, so you can't even think of that. But with the incarnate son, you can actually uh, speak of submission uh, because there are two wills in Christ. There's a divine and a human will. Mm -hmm. And the divine will is the will. And the divine will is the will he shares with the father because, yes. yeah, God, we're as you said, we're not uh, tritheists. We believe that there is one God who is, who has one will and one intellect. Yes. Yeah. Goes to the cross. But the issue is, again, odd intro within uh, within the Godhead. Is there is the father a father? Is is yes. the son a son? Is there any yes. kind of frictionless authority and obedience within the Godhead? And and we would point to that and say, no, we confess that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are equal, fully equal, and all one God. We affirm the simplicity of God, and yet the Father sends the Son into the world. And so for us, submission does not equal inequality. Right. I think we, if I recall correctly, probably the second, third, third or fourth well, dialogue we did, we sort of dove into right some of this stuff. So he says that for us, the Father sends the Son into the world, but their actions, but I, I, I still don't... But from what I understand, their actions are are still unified in the same way that the Father sends the Son into the world. This it's just as true to say that the Son sends Himself into the world too, because that will that the Son because the Son is just as involved with that action as the yes. Father. Because at extra, we're talking about what are called uh, Trinitarian appropriations. Yeah, is that we're appropriating certain acts as proper to each mm -hmm. one of the subjects. All right. So, like only only the for for example only the sun dies on the on the cross, right? Uh, but that has more to do with subjectivity um, than it does have to do with uh, appropriation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just like so many so many like category errors and confusions going through the brains of these of these guys. Yeah, it's it's really sad to see that they like if honestly if I got like dream like somebody out there call James White up if I got on the dividing line. And I got to just talk with James White for like an hour. I could I could clear up a lot of this stuff and be like, look, okay, this is actually what we're what we're trying to say. I'm not really sure what he's been reading, or I, I think it might be just like tweets of online like Protestant Thomists that he might be reading, and this is where he's getting all of his information. But uh, he's he he claims that he uh, that he reads he's read through Thomas. So uh, who knows what that means. Uh, other Paul, if you happen to be listening to the stream, hint, 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 hint. If imagine, uh, imagine how popular a uh, a dialogue between James White and the militant Thomas would be on the other Paul's channel. Hint, <laughs> hint, the other Paul, hint. Okay, let's continue. I think we, if I recall correctly, probably the second, third, third or fourth dialogue we did, we sort of dove into some of this mm -hmm. stuff because someone had. Believe it or not, Doug, I hate to, to, to break this to you. I know it's it's wonderful living up here in Moscow and stuff like that. But but people on the internet write articles about you. I, 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 really, <laughs> I, just, I, have to, I have to bring this information to you from outside. Um, but um, yes, and if I recall correctly, someone had focused on this and was going after the eternal functional sort of subordination yeah. positions like that. And so we had a discussion uh, about where you were coming from on that. And I talked a little bit about uh, the son as autotheos in Calvin, yeah. uh, God in and of himself. And this is part of the discussion of... Okay, people actually ask me about this, whether we can properly say that the son is autotheos. And I would distinguish essentially uh, that according to the essence, 
the son is God of himself in that he has the, the self-same uh, self same essence with the father and the son, I would concede. But when it comes to hypostatically that the son is um, said to be God um, of himself according to his hypostasis, I would deny that because um, hypostatically he uh, proceeds from the father by way of intellect. I would agree. Yeah, which which is this is this is really bad because you know what, do you know what Altotheos is actually pushing against? Uh, let's see, it's pushing against uh, Arianism and also subordinationism. Well, it's actually directly pushing against Deo De Deum, uh, the the formulation of the Nicene Creed. And when you're pushing against the Nicene Creed, you're probably on the wrong side, dude. <laughs> like, Most likely, yes. <laughs> because the Son is described as God of God, and then Calvin was like, "No, actually, actually, it's God of uh, of Himself." Like, no, no, that's uh, you're you're really equivocating. Because if we're talking about essentially that God is of Himself, um, then like we just use aseity, just mm -hmm. just say he's ase, rather than atatheos. Why why be special? Like this is this confuses me so much why these guys want to be special. Uh yeah, I mean I a lot of the things yeah, I mean a lot of, in a lot during the Reformation was called into question and then they just settled about which councils they eventually wanted to defend and which ones they didn't. The mm -hmm. I believe like the Calvinists just stopped at uh, night stopped before accepting Nicaea 2 and then everything after Nicaea Nicaea 2 and everything after that was just rejected. Yeah, it's, re it's really weird. Uh, I don't want this to be a historical survey of the councils. But it is really weird how in the West there was still um, like this leeriness about like seven ecumenical councils. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the, the numbering of the councils are really weird because some are four, some are five, some are six. Um, they really uh, disagree amongst themselves. And they're also like affirming the the Trinitarian affirmations of, of um of Lateran four, uh, they're they're actively defending Lateran four in that sense, and then in other senses they're denying Lateran four. So it's really kind of a huge mess of how they're going to view the magisterial authority of the church prior to the Reformation. It's very yeah. arbitrary. Um, hmm. So I mean, when you say that uh, the councils may err, uh, there, there's really no no stopping which ones you believe uh, will err. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I do. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that is a tough one to follow. You just basically at that point have to select your councils and then just say they're biblical by going back to the Bible. Yeah, and it, it is really weird how how they're making these very strange judgments when it comes to like how they're defining orthodoxy. We see that's a huge problem with because earlier uh, in earlier times, Protestantism didn't have too huge of a problem when it comes to defining orthodoxy because they had magisterial authority. Right. Whether it be the, uh, the the town council in union with the pres uh, presbyterate, or whether it be the crown in union with the bishops, or whatever whatever the system may be, there there was there was a uh, there was still a magisterial uh, authority. But after the collapse of the great uh, magisteriums of Protestantism and the the rank pluralism that that came in after that, you 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 really don't. You really don't have a binding magisterium. Yeah, no, I would agree. And then, and then they're just yeah, because in these councils, people primacy is clearly asserted, like Philip the Legate at the Council of Ephesus. I'm telling you, Council of Ephesus goes hard. That was yes. that was something which was eye opening for me. It's just 
because something I wanted to do right when I started uh, researching uh, Catholicism is I just wanted to read through very carefully the acts of the seven ecumenical councils. And I came away from that, like very shocked about um, how papist a lot of them sounded. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to continue the, the video. Uh, the relationship of the divine persons, as far as does the son receive his, um, uh, his true deity at second hand uh, at second hand yeah, in essence yeah. uh, from, from the father and there were certainly people christians in the past who who would say since it's an eternal act it, it doesn't necessarily result in subordination and calvin said no it, it will necessarily result in that and he was willing to go against mm -hmm. really uh, what was a popular post-nicene um was nicene how how could you say that the son is not god of god and say Oh, it's post-Nicene Orthodox. God from God, light from light, very God of very God, create uh, begotten but not made, of one essence with the Father. Even the word begotten, yeah. Uh, even the word begotten is act is actually a word that results from an active action of the Father. Yeah, uh, it's the reason why it's and for mine the reason why it's not causal is is for two in the way we think of it is for two reasons yeah. one it doesn't result in a temporal effect namely the creation of the son uh two it's a necessary action of the father there's no possible there's no set uh, there's no possible state of affairs where the father isn't beginning the son unlike the creation of the world which god could or could not have done and uh, the third reason is it's an it's an act that's internal to God. It's not an act that's external to God. It's something God always does because it's a relation, because it's an activity he bears in relation to himself. That is, um, in essence, he, that is the father, because that is the father. He con he eternally constitutes the son in relation to his own divine essence. Um, is yeah, that Tom, Thomas talks about this in chapter one of um, against the heirs of the Greeks. Mm -hmm. He's going to say that there's three uh, distinctions that we make when we use the word cause, because usually the Latins, we speak about this. And this came up at the Council of Florence and was debated hotly, is that we use the word principle. They use the word cause, but actually we mean the same thing about it, because first, um, we don't mean cause by any formal material or final sense, but only um, of an originating cause, kind of like a, as we would think of as an efficient cause. But we negate the fact that... Um, there's a diverse essence between um, the what is uh, the cause and what is caused, and then um, like uh, find, then we deny also that the sun is is made, and then we also um, deny uh, really um, where where does he cover this? Yeah, we, we basically we're denying diversity between the. Uh, the origin and then what is originated or cause and what is caused. Yeah. It's um, think of it like this. God is eternally reflecting upon himself. Like that is a relationship he bears to, he uh, uh, bears to himself. Uh, just because, but just because he's thinking about himself doesn't mean that he is created because he's the subject of his own thought. It just means that that is the relationship he bears to himself. And it doesn't mean that the object of his thought is any less divine than he is. Oh, no, Corey got me. I meant against the errors of the Greeks, not against the Greeks. But by uh, 
by the Greeks. He's talking about the, the contemporary Greeks of his day. But interestingly enough, um, this this work isn't really against the errors of the Greeks. It's really explaining what the Greek church fathers, the Greek fathers were saying. It's really weird why it's called against the errors of the Greeks. Do you think it was uh, titled after his death? Um, Probably. I mean, a lot of his works were. Yeah, that could be it. Okay, I'm going to continue. Corey, you're probably having uh, Tourette's right now listening to James White talk about Thomism. Uh, before Socinianism really took off, that that kind of stuff was coming and, and in a sense was pushing back against it even before it made expression, which is which is helpful. It's, it's useful. Right. Um, but so much of this, uh, again, takes us back to ultimately what is our filter that we are going to use in talking about these very challenging issues? Are we not in a situation where we have what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches us there's one God. Scripture teaches us that there are three divine persons who communicate with one another, distinguish one another. Even when Jesus says in, in John 10, 30, I am the Father, it's a plural verb. We are one. It's not I and the Father is one. Yeah, it's because I'm... because with pronouns, it's going to be referring to subjectivity, which is going to have to do with hypostasis and not when it comes to it. So, so of course, it's going to be um, it's going to be different subjects are being referred to in a certain sentence. It's going to be a plural verb because they're different subjects, although they're the same essence. Exactly, but when you get to names, however, uh, there is it is singular. So, for example, I bap. So, for example, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. Yeah, because some it's really weird. I was trying to explain this to somebody because people really get um, caught up on why the New Testament refers to the Father. But it seems like the New Testament refers to the Father solely as God. Which does occur in uh, in many instances, but the reason behind that is we usually think of God in the term of an essential name, so something which is denoting the essence, which is singular. But actually, in the New Testament, God and it's the same with Lord referring to the Son. They're nominal; they they aren't essential. So we're actually signifying a uh, a certain um, name of one of the hypostases rather than the the essence as a whole. It's very interesting uh, when it, when it comes to that. Uh, so, so uh, when wasn't it comes to a, name, okay, give me, Jesus, oh, give sorry, me one second. Eh? All right. And apparently I have hijacked the whole show right now. If anyone wants to make a comment here, I will try to interact with it. But I cannot put your name on the screen. Okay. Let's see. Oh, I love this one by Neon Peon. James White thinks Thomistic divine simplicity is beyond scripture, but presuppositionalism presuppositionalism is it. Uh, that's that's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, I guess he, in his defense, he'd probably try to defend it by citing various scriptural um, places where you know the apostles. Uh, just preach and they don't make syllogisms or, or something like that. But I know it's pretty evident to me when you read Romans and wisdom that, you know, arguments are made from um, the effects in the world to, to God. So I find that hard to believe. I also find it hard to believe considering that when Jews accepted the old Testament, the Christians didn't just start breaking down. Well, you need a Trinitarian foundation in order to have a consistent worldview. They didn't do that. They just cited the Old Testament. Uh, so that wasn't really done. <laughs> they, they provided evidence. 
Your boy EB said, what is God? Ooh, what do we have uh, time for here? All right. FLP says, original win productions, return to Twitter. Sorry to distracting, my guy. All right. Athanasius said, should I take a deep dive to St. Thomas or Bonaventure's theology first? I would go with, as someone who likes Bonaventure, I would still say St. Thomas, uh, mostly because it's uh, for three reasons. One, it's out of all the Catholic philosophy that it's most familiar with by both opponents and by proponents of the church's theology, Thomism would be the most familiar with. Secondly, uh, a lot of people, whether they agree or disagree with Thomas, have to engage with him anyway as Catholics. And thirdly, we always have to defer to him ever since the Leon the Leohine, uh, and, of course, Pope Pius IX's uh, resurrection of Thomism. Uh, let's see here. Um, oh, uh, so, all right. The, the threatened swan says, his excuse would be, unlike R.C.'s, he uses language similar to the scriptures, but they matters less than if it's the same essence. FLP says, new YouTube video, when? Okay, I'll, I'll consider that one. Um, excuse me, my guys, I also have to go. Christian will probably be back before I am, but uh, just let him know that I will return in like a couple minutes if he's back. Okay, I'm back. Oh, where'd John Fisher go? Oh, man. I'm here. I'm just uh, stepping away for a couple minutes. Oh yeah, my my son was uh my son was choking, so I had to go save him. So yeah, but I'm back now. W no one's here. Okay, so let us let us continue. Where can somebody find a good copy of some of the works of Saint Bonaventure? Um, you have to go to Aquinas.cc and uh, all of these classic works. Uh, St. Thomas or St. Bonaventure's theology first. St. Bonaventure's spirituality, because he's called the fire of the church. St. Thomas's theology, called the uh, because he's called the light of the church. Okay. What is God? Um, uh, Self-subsisting being. Okay. <laughs> Dad to the rescue. Yeah, my wife just comes like barging in the room and saying like, I need you right now. And I'm like, oh man, what's going on? And then I run in there and my son's like choking. And then I went and I just pop, pop, pop right in the back and he was all fine. Coughed it up. So just had to save a life real quick. Don't worry about it. Just another day. Okay, let's continue. And the father, we are one there. John is especially extremely careful to make sure those distinctions are there. And so, and then we have the equality of the persons. We have the father being identified as Yahweh and the son being identified as Yahweh and the spirit's the spirit of Yahweh. And so we have this biblical data and the church has had to go out into the world. We have to answer the questions. We had to answer the questions of Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. But I think most people who read much in the early church recognize that there was conflict even then. Right. I mean, you've got a Justin Martyr. He never took off the philosopher's pallium. He wore it even as a, as a Christian to his death. And you can see the deep influence of Greek philosophy in his formulation of, of Christian theology. And you got Tertullian going, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Uh, that, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a phrase from Tertullian, but I mean, if you read his, uh, his Apologia or his, uh, or his De Anima, 
you clearly see that he was a synthesizer of Greek philosophy. Everybody was, and uh, it was it it was pretty universal um, throughout the the early medieval church that the that the gospel was preceded by philosophy um, as a certain preparation that they were going to kind of raid the Egyptians like they would the philosophers. And he's seeing that. And so this tension, it's nothing new. Yeah. The problem is that when we don't read church history, we think it's new in our day. And, and we, uh, one of the things I've noticed, we, uh, we've had these tensions forever. And if someone accepts Nicaea and Chalcedon and say, yes, I, and no funny business, you know, I, I accept it the way they, they spelled it out. Uh, when you say here, I accept when it comes from Christ being God of God, this is where I am. And let's say I use the argument that I used on the son submitting to the father being sent to the world. Also, a parent, parenthetical comment here. Um, advice to people who name their positions, things like subordinate, uh, eternal, eternal function subordination. Yeah. Why don't we say, why don't I come up with some new trinity and say, this is the real Nestorianism. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. You, you don't want to name. Market it well. yeah, Look, don't, no, no, no. Subordinationism is a classic heresy. heresy. It's a, and it's a straight up heresy. And you shouldn't call what you're doing by that name. It doesn't, it doesn't, you're not helping anybody. So if someone said, do you believe eternal functional subordination? That's not my terminology. That's not, we shouldn't be, I don't think we should be messing around with that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we should also recognize that we are, we need to take off our shoes because we're walking on holy ground. We're walking on holy ground and we're talking about things that are way above our pay grade. And, and so we want to do it with humility and grace. And if, if a Christian is within the boundaries of the, of the creed, I want to, let's say I'm talking to. Uh, again, it's just completely arbitrary when it comes to how you're how you're um, speaking of orthodoxy, because they would say, especially when it comes to your Trinitarian theology, that you are not uh, within the creed, within the uh, bounds set by the creed. They would say that you are actually without, outside of it. And you're saying, no, 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 we uh, actually I'm within it. And they're like, no, you're outside of it. And you're like, well, actually, we just need to do this with humility and grace and within inside the bounds of the creed and everything. Like it, it, all, all of this is just so it's just so uh, silly. Do a Thomist that I consider to be orthodox, he's going to say some things that make me nervous, mm -hmm. right? Which is why they should just follow their respective confessions, which neither of them do. Talking to a Thomist that I consider to be orthodox, he's going to say some things that make me nervous, mm -hmm. right? And I say, ah, you're making me nervous, man. Mm -hmm. But being made nervous, you're leaning a little bit too far this way in the canoe. Doesn't give me the right to push them over. Push them over. Because <laughs> right. I'm going to go over it in the rest. Because I've seen sort of a, a yes. in this recent stuff, if anybody says does any kind of yabbing or pushing back on mm -hmm. this hard Thomism, it's like you're a heretic. You're, a heretic. you're um, and you're you're either a benighted evangelical who doesn't know anything, part of the great unwashed multitude, or if you're a Bible teacher, then you're a heretic. Right. What's worse is if you, I, I have never heard any, any uh, any of these guys calling James White or Doug Wilson heretics. I mean, they should, but that's a discussion for another day. Thing part of the great unwashed multitude, mm -hmm. or if you're a Bible teacher, then you're a heretic. Right. What's worse is if you teach church history and you actually have to know something about Thomas, now you're a knowing heretic. Right. Bro, bro, please, please stop pretending. Like that's such, that's such a cope right there. Say that you're, you're some uh, Thomistic scholar, like get out of here. You're, you're the type that needs to be tied to the stake and get the kindling out right. uh, type of situation. And that is nobody's an expert in St. Thomas. Even Father Reginald Marie Garigou Lagrange said, "The Summa is for beginners because we will all per perpetually remain beginners in the in the school of Saint Thomas." So, you're not an expert, dude. Get out of here. Is that is situation? I, if, if someone look, I hope everyone hears what we're saying. I don't have any problem if you read Thomas. Mm -hmm. I commend you on your ability to plow through some <laughs> pretty rough stuff. I, I mean, but at the same time. I've spoken with reformed scholars, I won't use names right now, uh, who have said things like, of course I've read Thomas, but it was one of the most soul-starving experiences <laughs> of my life. Yeah, because in order to uh, in order to enjoy Thomas, you have to have the spirit 
which enlightened St. Thomas. Like that soul-sucking experience? Come on now. The Summa is glorious, beautiful, rich. It's the, it's the fruit of one of the most contemplative and spiritually um, vigorous men ever to exist. Like if you read about the life of St. Thomas here, you're not going to come, come, come around thinking he's some, he's some heady intellectual who uh, wasn't concerned with piety. That's just, no, no. It did not encourage me. It did not uh, reveal things. It did not encourage me or reveal things to me. Wow, bro. So cool. Now, is it right? soul starving experiences in my <laughs> life. It, it did not encourage me. It did not uh, reveal things to me. It was something I had to do because it was part of my scholastic requirements to be able to do so. Um, and so the other side though, it really, let me, let me just give you an idea. A, a fairly well-known scholar recently uh, made the statement that our received doctrine of the Trinity continued to develop. Now you, you mentioned Nicaea and Chalcedon. Let me just throw out, we're talking about the creeds of those mm -hmm. councils. We are well aware of the fact that those councils in their canons and decrees said things that Other we, things we, we would never ever agree with. And the vast majority of people I know of who proudly say, oh, I believe I've never read those canons and decrees themselves. That's right. been one of my experiences. But he made the statement that Nicaea, Chalcedon, and the process reached its final completion in, 12, in the 1200s with Thomas. Unironically true. Okay. And so from their perspective, and this was something you and I did discuss, it's not that Thomas is orthodox on the Trinity. It is that Thomas defines orthodoxy. the orthodoxy of the Trinity. Right. And there's Again, two different, there's two very true. different things at that point. Yeah. And it's, I think it's dangerous to push all your chips on an issue like this under one man. He's, um, he was made a doctor of the Roman Catholic church shortly so after true. his death, but, uh, and, but he's not, doesn't have that position for us as right. Protestants. Um, you can have someone as stalwart like Francis Schaeffer, who pretty much blamed everything wrong with the modern. World. Oh yes. Honestly, some of the most glorious reading is the first five questions of the Prima Secundae on Beatitude. That is some of the best reading you'll ever get. That section of the Prima Secundae. So good. So good. <laughs> there you go, folks. James White just admitting departs from the ancient faith by rejecting the councils. The Summa is better than anything a reformed person could write. So true, King. So true. So where do uh, Protestants get their idea of heresy from? Uh, it, that is the non-classical Protestants, at least. Uh, basically, what they would say is heresy is anything which uh, it, uh, denies an essential of the faith. But uh, again, like what de mm. what denies an essential of the faith? Exactly. That was a good face from White. Oh yeah, he he makes faces. According to the Diamond Brothers, he's demonically possessed. Which, to be I fair, everyone comment. who disagrees with them is also demonically possessed. I can't wait until they come out with a video about me about how I'm demonically possessed. Yeah, they're gonna probably make fun of. I don't know they're probably gonna find some secret about you and expose you for something that's super minor. I'm trying to think what secrets they would expose me for because I don't have many secrets. Yeah, I mean, the stuff me and you share, I'm probably just not going to repeat on stream. But, like, even knowing your personal details, I even if any of those things got out, I, I don't think any would, like, be enough to call into question your character. Yeah. Heck, I, I think uh, the Diamond Brothers would be better off just reporting you to the woke police. The woke police, so true. <laughs> About, uh, I actually can't even mention some of those beliefs on the, on the stream right now. I don't want to get shut down. But we will continue. 
world on, on france on, 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 thomas. Thomas. on thomas i wonder how francis schaefer would fare these days oh uh, good question that's why that's where i really do see a connection here between the rise of a strong thomism amongst the reformed and a rejection of van Til and of the presupposition yeah exactly it's the whole point wherever you put him in there was pushing the same kind of concepts and kind right. of well of well schaefer I, was I and this is um, point something this else is something we'll touch on maybe we can yeah what about van Til? from what i gather he was actually pretty good on uh, divine simplicity Really? And, yeah. And, you know, he actually had some pretty decent defenses of the Trinity and reconciling it with uh, simplicity as well. Like, I think his point was basically, look, there are all sorts of paradoxes in philosophy, like the one and the many. Like, and isn't really the Trinity one kind of formulation of that? Like, it's not that big a deal. If, so I, I, that's at least how uh, Bill, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, there's a guy who writes philosophy. It's a Maverick philosophy blog. That's how he read Van Til or how he charitably read him. And it's not really a bad approach. I think there's a lot worth considering. Okay. So I just uh, put a, put a link in there. Um, that's from one of my former professors. He wrote uh, an article called Christianity and Van Tilianism, which, uh, if you, if you know, uh, Christianity and liberalism, it, it's, it's actually based off of, uh, Oh. Of, uh, that. <laughs> if you ever um who, who wrote that christianity and liberalism machin machin based off of uh machin's name and he shows like a bunch of different problems with with van til even van til saying like there's three essences in god and saying there's there's like one person it's it's like really really weird um i mean didn't, like, wasn't like a van lot til of his I mean, didn't he just bring a lot of Dutch Reformed thought into the United States with him, and then just disseminated from there? Um, yeah, I, I guess you could say that he brought in a lot of, um, like what, uh, like Herman Bovink and Kuiper were were saying. Mm -hmm. Dang, this is such a long article, like two hundred fifty footnotes. Such a Chad article. Your, <laughs> your professor goes hard. I remember this was like the this was like my first week at RBC when it was released, mm. um, and I remember everybody was talking about it because he just like slapped down this like we printed out the article so we could read it. It was like fifty pages. It was like <laughs> like not even like a journal article. It was it was literally just like a like a popular level article that he had written. That means that means uh, one of the best uh, theologians in Protestantism for sure. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to continue. Could develop it a little bit more. Uh, Schaefer was very much a street-level apologist, right? Right. He um, he engaged with backpacking hippies from all over Europe who'd come through Libri, mm -hmm. and he wrote books that were very that really addressed where uh, college students of that generation were. He he spoke to where people were. He he was a theologian and a and a pastor and an evangelist speaking to people evangelizing right doing apologetics he wasn't speaking to co-professionals he wasn't speaking to academics right right and in my experience there uh presuppositional apologetics vantillian apologetics is very much a street level um activity you've had many debates i've been in a number of debates with uh non-believers uh, and you've done street work i've done street work um francis schaefer was very much in that mold but I, when i see the this resurgent hard thomism i'm calling it uh it seems a little too 
too much mountain air. Too <laughs> well, not Labrie Mountain Air. <laughs> not not Labrie Mountain Air. It's sort of like this. These guys are up in the clouds. They're not. They're not on the streets. And I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I have to be somewhat uh, restrained at this point because it's the natural tendency for me when engaging these things is to say, "Look, I've debated oneness Pentecostals, some of their leading people." And if you tried to bring this stuff into a debate on that level with someone who's not even going to start to buy your beginning, your beginning principles with Thomas, mm -hmm. um, you're getting absolutely positively nowhere. And, you know, this is just silly because, I mean, a lot of you out there, you glorious and beloved listeners, I've taught you guys a lot of stuff about Trinitarian theology. I've made the same distinctions Thomas makes, and they're helpful, and they help you. Because a lot of times when you're debating somebody or responding to somebody, it's not for their sake. It's for the sake of the listener, the, the, uh, the middle that, that big group of people who are maybe unsure or maybe they're convinced your position. They don't know uh, how to answer that. That's that's the group. And you're trying to educate them into uh, and to bring them. Uh, but again, all of this, like half of half of this video has been begging the question um, so far. They've, they've basically just been um, just seething and coping about how uh, Matomism too hard. Uh, Matomism oh, too, too hard, Matomism too complicated, and actually, um, yeah, they must be wrong. Then it's like, like, also if, how if you were, if you were a good theologian, how, you would actually respond to our claims. I'd also point out that how complex or simplified something can be doesn't indicate how true it is, it just indicates that it could be simply delivered to people and they can buy it. Like, it doesn't yeah, mean you, you, you can, you can simply, I mean, our our doctrine of the Trinity is just as easily delivered in the three or four lines given in the Nicene Creed as it is given in the volume treatment by um, the Sacred Theologia Summa or uh, by by Pole. I mean, it's it's just as easily delivered in both formats. They're teaching the same thing. Yeah, and usually the that's the great part about uh, the Trinity. You can, since we understand God. Um, you know, as creatures seeing through, see, understanding him by revelation and by nature thinly veiled, we can draw up these analogies that help us better approximate, uh, although not totally understand yeah. God, uh, God's triune nature. So uh, when we consider that, so like uh, the example I gave, uh, in fact, instead of using a drumstick, how about this? How about uh, a pole? There's a if I if I'm in a temple and I see a pillar and that pillar is also a statue, I'm seeing three things: a statue, a pillar, and a, and basically the rock. It's uh, both those things are chiseled out of. Are those three the same thing? Not necessarily, because I could push the uh, the I could push it out of the temple and it no longer is a pillar, but it's still a statue. Or I could chisel some of the rock away and it's no longer a statue, but it clearly holds up the building. And at the same time, it is made of some underlying clay. Yet there are three distinct things that are going on there, and they each bear their own special relation. Yeah, that's fairly similar to the Trinity. Is it like one for one? No, but it kind of helps you better understand. And in fact, that's actually why we kind of bring it back to biblical revelation. Um, who, what other historical claim in history has better authentic, better attestation than the resurrection of Christ? Yeah, nothing. And if he tells us that there's a an authority of scripture and tradition that attests to this mystery, that's it. Like we go from an, we go from the authority to understanding. That's why we have revelation. Uh, Christian, are you there? Okay, I'm here. Okay, I'm here. Yeah, I, I, uh, 
for some reason it kicked me out real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just saying, that's the point of special revelation. We're told so that we may understand. Natural revelation is something uh, that everyone can start off with, and this is where we have common ground of discussion. Like, if somebody doesn't believe that the church, that uh, the scriptures are the word of God, then there's really no basis to argue for the Trinity in the first place. Uh, you, you might make a probabilistic argument for it, and that's nice, but like, it's not like this rock salt thing you get in natural theology. And I and and I don't understand why we must have that with special revelation. If so, I don't. I don't know why we're not rationalists who insist that every doctrine of the church must be revealed by reason alone. Like that's, uh, and that's, you know, uh, I, that's a criticism of the reform that the Lutherans have, that they're more sola reason rather than sola scriptura. And I think it's like arguments like uh, this, which kind of vindicate that, uh, that accusation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's, Keep going. Only got nine minutes left. Let's hope we can survive. And the Forgotten Trinity, I can't tell you how many people I've encountered over the years who said, they said, I, I was given that book and that's why I'm not a one that's Pentecostal any longer. I'm not a Jehovah. Again, Christ. doesn't matter. Uh, deal, deal with the the uh, the content of our claims. I'm not a Mormon anymore. Also, uh, also, because... I add, also, I should add, if uh, somebody gave up one is Pentecostalism or anything to embrace uh, James White's understanding of the Trinity, it doesn't mean they've adopted the Nicene understanding, <laughs> James White's understanding, which still falls short at, at the very least. I mean, I mean, you went from being a uh, oneness Pentecostal to a tritheist, so yeah, you, you just jumped to the other extreme. Exactly. Yeah, what I presented in the in the book was I'm a biblical Trinitarian. Right. I believe in the doctrine. So it's so true. I'm a biblical Trinitarian too. Thank you. Read St. Thomas's commentary on, uh, on the gospel according to St. John, one of the best expositions of the Trinity um, ever written. The Bible forces me also, to believe. I'm not sure if you've ever seen I should also add. I should also add that the Bible itself attests to the fact that the Father eternally begets the Son. That's why so the true. Son is, yeah. Yes, the only begotten. Like, the only begotten. Exactly. And I don't... This is terrible. We don't have actually have a paper Bible sitting in front of us. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen a presentation where I, I say, I'm, I'm going to show you right now where the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed in the Bible. And I have, I, I opened the Bible up to the end of Malachi in the beginning of Matthew. And I say, see the gutter here? There, there's, there's where the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed. And most people sit there going, I'm not going to respond. I'm going to show you where the doctrine of the Trinity was revealed in the Bible. Oh, I can do that too. Okay, let's find it. I wonder if you're going to go to the same page I want to go to. Okay. Page one, Genesis. Oh, I wasn't going to go there, but next, next, next. I mean, yeah. like, come on. I, I, <laughs> I am a firm believer in the fact that Genesis one is talking about um, let us make men in our image. It's talking about the Trinity. Or is that I, Genesis two? Oh no, that wasn't. That was uh, in Genesis two, I believe. Yes, exactly. Saint Thomas was a Bible scholar before he was a philosopher. That's true. That's, a, that's yeah. the strongest point. That's why he's better than Scotus, inshallah, because he was. Uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> because did, did Scotus write any uh, commentaries on Sacred Scripture? I don't think he did. Uh, I can't. I can't recall. I think he just wrote commentaries on uh, on the works of Aristotle. So Saint Thomas is better because his best works are actually his commentaries. So true. 
Okay. Oh, uh, but, oh, but I do want to add something. Okay, go ahead. The, the first words that are spoken to you as a Christian are, uh, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. And notice that there are three persons named, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet it is a singular name. And on top of that, not only is this name singular, in Jewish culture, the name of somebody usually, especially in scripture, signified an essence. So three people holding one name, i.e. an essence, that is all shared betwixt them, sounds fairly much like the claims made about the Trinity. Now, in terms of, uh, now in terms of the uh, processions, fair, fair enough, you don't get those there, but there are plenty of other places. And no form of Unitarianism ever gets you that far. None. Exactly. Oh, and I just want to mention one more thing. Go ahead. A lot of Unitarians like to rigmarole and say, well, that doesn't show the Trinity. And they'll, and they'll usually demand like all these highfalutin arguments. But the number one response is just to say, if this doesn't show the Trinity, then please explain to me how... Uh, there was a whole two centuries where people were trying to say it wasn't even in the Bible to begin with. And the biggest proponents were usually Unitarians. Like that, that, that to me smells like desperation, just to say that that particular scripture wasn't even in there to begin with. Sorry. Uh, I, I really just like this, this defense of the doctrine. You're good. Okay. okay let's finish this baby up bond to react because there's a camera on me isn't there you know, they're, they're, they're sort of nervous <laughs> you know a trick here and I, and, I, and I go now let me explain what that means the primary revelation of the doctrine of the trinity is the incarnation of the son death brought resurrection enthronement in heaven mm -hmm. and the outpouring of the holy spirit so you look at someone like peter peter is an experiential trinitarian he mm -hmm. walked with the son he heard the father speaking on mount transfiguration he's now indwelled by the spirit he's a trinitarian of necessity yeah. because he's lived through the historical revelation of what the what it was and you have to have that kind of historical revelation for paul to be able to do what paul did in first corinthians 8 when you think about what he did when he takes the shema shema yisrael yahweh eloheinu yahweh echad and what does he do he expands it mm -hmm. using the very language from the greek septuagint yeah. of the shema right. and saying but not all men have this knowledge but we know one god one lord of whom are all things, for whom are all things. Mm -hmm. That's straight out of the Shema. He is taking the Shema and saying it has been expanded by what God did in history. Right. So, so the point is, everything from Matthew onward is written by a Trinitarian. Right. And so the language they use, it's so easy for Paul to go from the Spirit of God to the Spirit of Christ without stopping and having to explain what in the world is. Oh, this is our new doctrine of the Trinity. No, he doesn't have to do that. He yeah, never and, does. And one of the mistakes that like JWs make, they think, oh, that's heady Greek philosophers uh, right. cooked up the Trinity. Right. Well, no, it was John, that which our hands have handled. That you know, we we saw him. We be we beheld his glory. Okay. Uh, the, or the first Trinitarians were dealing with data, with revelation, Re revelation, with, with history. It yeah. happened right here, right now. We saw it. We we held. We we touched that's him. We heard him speak. Uh, we were on the mountain, and so. That's why the New Testament reveals the Trinity the way it does, because it's already a given. What did you say? Uh, I would actually say this is all correct. In fact, it's usually the Unitarians and the anti-Trinitarians that bring in the Greek philosophy. Like, uh, it's usually, like it's usually Sibelians and Arians who try to make some Greek philosophical argument for why uh, Christ being begotten makes him less than God or, yeah. or something like that. Uh, it, and it just goes back to some platonic notion that, you know, the perfect, almighty, uh, highest thing could never even interact with creation. So some lower demiurge has to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Let's continue.
Paul doesn't have to stop. When, when, when Paul writes to Titus and he identifies Jesus as our, as our great God and Savior, he doesn't have to stop and say, no, no, Titus, let me help you understand what this is all about. No, Titus already possesses this. This is The churches have already been taught this. And so it's it's the natural, it's the context of the New Testament. Right. So one of the things that we're, uh, and we touched on this in our discussion before, and I think we ought to spend a little time on this, is the, the thing that's most deeply concerning about this movement uh, to me is the way, um, the, the authority that an extra biblical source has um, that drives what ex what my exegesis would come up with. So in my experience, when I've said, uh, look, the father sent the son, is that's not, the father sent the incarnate son to Jerusalem, but the pre-incarnate Christ was sent into the world. Right, right, right. So, okay. um, so you have, and, and the issue isn't the exegesis of those passages, there are multiple passages. The thing that's concerning to me is I'll lay out a biblical argument and say, here, here's why I think this. And then the answer to that is, but Thomas. Yes. Th that's that's the thing that, that makes me go. Ah, ah. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm. I'm... Oh my gosh, this that, that that's so silly. I mean, every, everybody does that. I, I I mean, like this this is weird. Like, what I I really just don't get the nature of this objection. Like, uh, like what's this supposed to show? People like invoking authorities all the time. Some people are just smarter than you. And maybe, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if uh, if uh, if I was like maybe a good way to interpret this specific passage. So, for example, John three sixteen. Um, that's a very popular one. A lot of people have interpreted it to mean, uh, you know, something along a more Arminian line that oh, God loved the world that he died for everybody. So it's a yeah. way of just being a. Now, of course, that's how mo that's how most commentators do it. Uh, now, if uh, somebody was to say that, oh, this kind of shows Armenianism, the Armenian interpretation, but right in the Calvinist one to be false. And someone was to say, actually, Doug Wilson interprets it like this. And he, he says, when it speaks of the world, it's not speaking of every individual. It's speaking of the creation. The creation is going to be renewed. And he has kind of a post-millennial spin. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, uh, Doug Wilson wins the day or, or something like that. But I'm saying, you know, he, he's someone who's at least smart enough to have considered it, put some thought into it. I at least owe some deference before I say this is like an outright defeater to at least see what he says about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if someone's invoking Thomas... Like a and, certain authority said this, like, no, actually, you can't, you can't invoke authorities. Yeah. You can't do it. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's, it's like within a, um, basically within a reformed context, if you have two reformed people talking about it and I say, well, this is what the Westminster confession says. The other reformed person usually would say like, well, okay. I mean, uh, like I'm going to defer to that, but I need to, I need to research this a little bit more because everybody has to have authorities. I mean, if you have no authorities, yeah, I mean, you have authorities. Everybody does. It's it's just inescapable when it comes to the interpretation of sacred scripture. You're going to have the people who you think are most correct. Yeah, I'm actually kind of curious as to what the London Baptismal Confession of Faith has to say on simplicity. It it uh it, there's there's people who have like works from the people who were at the 1689 Second London Baptist. Um, I don't even know what they would call convention to uh to to write up the confession um and and they they all wholeheartedly supported simplicity and condemned 
very harshly any other view. Nice. Okay, I'm going to continue this. Five minutes. I'm willing to hear we'll you. Uh, let's open our Bibles and have a Bible study and show me that sent. And, you know, let's discuss the text. Mm -hmm. And really, uh, this is a very, um, and, I, and I'm using this term in a, in a contemporary sense, not necessarily a technical uh, sense. It's a very nominalistic way of going about things. Like, show, show me the word. Show me the word. Not not show me the uh, the concept or show me certain premises that would lead you to that conclusion, because that's not how we do theology. We don't go and do fancy little cute cutesy little word studies like most modern exegetes go about things. We have to acquire the sense of the text. And in doing theology, what we do is we take all of these truths which are revealed to us in sacred scripture, and we are we are putting them together into a into a holistic uh, system uh, that makes sense. That is uh, that that is truly perfecting nature. I mean, the, the, there's there's significant reasons why we do this. It, it isn't just a bunch of cool little word studies. But there seems to be a governor that is overrides anything anything that the text says, and I, such that you don't even have to engage with the text. And and then uh, that seems to me to be a classic um, move on the part of. And when I pointed out. The response always is, "Well, you're trying you're trying to promote biblicism. So true. You're trying to promote nuda scriptura so or solo scriptura. So true. Terms that have been so thrown true. around for quite some time for the idea of it's you and your Bible under the tree, and there's no connection with the church, and there's nothing you can ever learn from the people who came before you. Mm -hmm. And there are people like that. Yeah. But granted, but that's not me. Yeah, not I, me teach, I, teach, I teach church history for crying out loud. We're not we're not oh saying there gosh. isn't anything to be learned from these things. James White challenge: Go ten minutes during your show without saying. mentioning that you teach church history. Uh, on, this is kind of weird. On the one hand, we're supposed to believe that any kind of invocation of St. Thomas, uh, just so you can consider his authority. Oh, now you're suffocating me with extra biblical authority. And suddenly it's like, oh, well, you're just practicing solo scripture. What? How dare you? I teach church history. We can definitely learn something from these authorities. Like, <laughs> you just can't invoke them. You just can't invoke them. You just can't invoke it. What? Like, okay. So I just want. I just want to know from either of these gentlemen, in what sense can I invoke the authority of Christian, of church history? To what degree can I do that? And how heavy is it? How much do you weigh it, considering your own reading of scripture? In fact, I actually have even a challenge. Have either of these gentlemen seen a, seen a biblical reading that seemed obvious to them, but they decided not to go with that reading? Because it contradicted how uh, how Christians have traditionally read it, um, I'd like to know that. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, a case there's plenty of there's plenty of texts like that. Um, yeah, I'll, let me I'll let me think. Talking. Um, how about uh, here's one. Uh, how about uh, when it speaks of Saint Joseph uh, not going in? Uh, when it speaks of Saint Joseph after his promise that he didn't go and know his wife until she had given birth. I'll be honest, if I didn't have any kind of notion of church history or tradition, that Protestant reading probably seems more likely to me. Um, but I didn't take that because, no, church history actually backs against that. Not only does it back against it, but if you read other parts of the Bible more clearly, it seems like that's not possible, such as when you read Luke and you read Luke, yeah. yeah, coming to the idea of Mary saying, "How sh I I know not even a man, like or yeah. how could this be?" Like that stuff makes me rule against it. 
I'm I'm consider I'm I'm asking you guys the same questions. Like what readings of certain scriptures seem at least on the face of it plausible until you go to the um, authority of the church which corrected I mean the, the I, Trinity I, I, is just a classic example of this because there's so many texts that on the face of it it seems like okay maybe this is teaching against the divinity of our lord or maybe this is um uh, teaching Sabellianism, or maybe this is teaching that, or this, or maybe this is teaching tritheism. There's there's plenty of texts on the surface that you could read it like that, and people do exploit those. But we're we're not here to just like throw a bunch of surface readings at each other. That that's never how it worked. Oh yeah, another good one. James, the brother of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, on the surface of that, it seems like uh, like our Lord was not um, virginally born. Exactly. Because according to James White, have you ever heard his argument about um, the perpetual virginity of Our Lady? When it, comes it says to brother right brother there. It says he, brother. he basically says we have to take brother in its natural sense that we always use the term brother. I was like, wait, I, I thought about this for like two seconds and it came to me because, I mean, this isn't that hard to think of. Wait a second. A brother has the same mother and father. If not, you're a you're half brother. Yeah, exactly. So if, you, if we have to take brother in the same sense, I mean, was were, were all of the kids virginally born? Then we have we have the virgin, uh, the, the perpetual virginity of Our Lady right there. And on the other hand, you deny the perpetual virginity of Our Lady by actually having our Lord born of Saint Joseph. So it's it's like it's a lose lose trying to argue that way. It's it's uh, it's terrible. Yeah, it's like evangelicals posting out of context verses to try to support one save always save Sabbath observance for me. You should still observe the Sabbath, by the way. Except you should note that our Sabbath is Sunday. Set yes, yes, yeah. yeah that's that's actually a, a, that's another a difficult one. Is it would seem from the a lot of the Old Testament texts that actually we should just keep the Saturday Sabbath and the Seventh Day Adventists definitely like to continuously point that out to us. I'm gonna. I mean, Paul is basically a, a Seventh Day Adventist. He goes to church on Saturday. So <laughs> unironically, he does. I'm, I'm, no, 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 I'm kidding. He's the other Paul is in Australia, so his Sundays are sat, Saturday. I, know, I always, I always see the the Saturday, uh, Saturday posts. Build the entire Christian faith every generation over and over and over again. But what we are saying is the source has to remain the Word of God as it was written and as it was intended to be understood by the author, by the audience, given to the church. And once you allow for a a, a lens to be placed above that that maybe developed over time, maybe it was a gift from the Holy Spirit, whatever. Once you put that lens above it, you're not mm -hmm. going to see anything in scripture that is ever going to allow you to be critical of the lens right. and the process of God into existence. Right. I prefer every my generation. Look, it's scripture myself. What'd you say? I said, I prefer my exegesis to have four lenses rather than one. So true. I have, I have, a, I have a quadra, quadra. God. Well, what, what would a four, a four lens be? Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, the first one is the literal sense, uh, ad literum. Uh, the second one is the... So there's, there's bivocal, so it'd be quadvocal. I prefer to have a quadvocal. Yeah, the second one is uh, the is the Christological reading. So uh, the allegorical. The allegorical. The third one is the moral reading. And the last one is, I think it's called the uh, eschatological. Anag the anagogical. Anagogical, thank you. Yeah, I well to be to be fair, I'm kind of cheating because I took a whole like semester long class on the on the on the on the four uh, four senses of the scripture. So uh, I'm really kind of, kind of a cheating because I spent like three weeks talking about the anagogical sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's that's my preferred way. It's a, it's a matter of balance. 
uh, we see people go off on both sides in every generation. You and I were old enough to have seen people that we can, my mind starts bringing up faces of people who've gone both directions. They've yeah. not remained balanced. They haven't stayed the course. Um, and we could have been amongst them. We're not for the grace of God. And we all confess all those things. Right. Um, so I've, um, what you said is, I think, so important. There are people who have a know nothing approach, you know, anti-intellectual, anti-church history. Um, I don't want, I don't know creed, but Christ, no law, but love. There, there are those people out there, um, but that's not you. And that's not me. Nope. And that's not the, that's, that's not the group that's being critiqued by the hardline Thomists. Mm -hmm. I'm reading, I'm chipping away at the Summa right now. I'm working my way through it to prove myself. I'm sorry. I mean, so, so, so Doug, if you want to go to christianbwagner.com, uh, we, we can get, we can, so we can get a personal, um, go to bookings or, uh, or I think it's labeled as tutoring. We get some personal sessions where we, where we go over the Summa. Uh, I can explain stuff to you. If you're having a difficult time, Doug, I, I, I would be happy to do that. I'd be honored actually. I'll give you a discount, uh, for, for uh for, for all it means uh you you i'll give you like a 10 percent discount or something doug if, if you need the sumo explained to you i would be happy to be of service to you like that i also i i do want to say i do appreciate the fact that he is going through the sumo that is commendable uh but i also just want to point out one thing um there's also the sumo contradiction t list there's a, there's just a lot so yeah i mean there's there's i have right behind me uh I think I have three, six, nine, 12, 13, 14, 15. I have 15 volumes of St. Thomas's works and he has 80. Wow. So it, it when it's finished, the, uh, the Corpus Domesticum by the Aquinas uh, Institute is going to be 80 volumes. So, it, and I mean, of those volumes are probably through all of my scattered reading, probably read the, about the 15, maybe, maybe 20 of them because it's just scattered reading that I've done. But uh, again, one quarter, <laughs> like that's, that that's, I mean, really the only section that I have just deeply uh, dove into like a trillion times is pre uh, the first half of Prima Pars, one through 49. Um, and then the Tractatus de Gratiae um, on grace is really the only two sections that I've, that I've really been able to have that hardcore reading of. So like, it, yeah, it's great. You're reading through the Summa, but, Come on now, like the, the, there's there's a lot more there's a lot more to it uh, that'll give you the basics, but uh, it, it's really a lifetime. It isn't like a, like oh let's let's take a few weeks and uh, and do a cutesy little study, mm -hmm. which is why I like to teach people how to read the Summa, and not necessarily have to like spend four years, which is why you should go to annotated Thomas on crispywagner.com, give you a little section of the Summa every single day my own personal uh, footnotes, explaining terms, uh, summary of the articles, everything like that to teach you how to read the Summa because uh, it would it would take me forever to teach you every little thing that you need to know about Thomism. You got to do reading on your own and I know it can be a bit difficult, but let's continue. Prove myself a man. <laughs> I can do tough things. I, I can, okay, I can eat a bowl of gravel. Um, and so I'm so I'm chipping reading through the Summa, and I'll just make up an a, a absurd example. You know, Thomas is the kind of person who could have a section or page and a half on on whether demons can sin in the afternoon. So true. Okay. How did you come up with this question? You know, but other times I come across passages that I just think are glorious. I just think so true. Okay, that's glorious. That's wonderful. So as you said earlier, staggering genius, great man, certainly a great man, but he's not my interpreter. No. He, he's one voice among many, and we need to uh, be a lot less partisan when we discuss Thomas. And we need to recognize that the metaphysical system that he brings to us 
while he attempted to allow scripture to have an influence, its fundamental heart was not derived from scripture. Right. It was, he was attempting to fix, to baptize, you know, the, the term's been used, he, he tried oh to baptize Aristotle. Mm -hmm. The question is whether he was successful, but even then, coming from his perspective, this last minute. there were still a lot of areas that he didn't have, you know, the Bible. The reason, the reason he didn't succeed is he didn't do it when he should have, which is when Aristotle <laughs> was an infant. <laughs> so should have, should have saw that one coming, <laughs> saw that one coming. Believers philosophical <laughs> baptism of Aristotle, okay. Oh my. You oh, by the way, you have, by the way, you have a bunch of uh, porn sites trying to advertise in the group chat. So, oh, why doesn't one of my mods take care of it? Come on, guys. Guys, but 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 come on now. Like even the, Thomas, you, you, where, where where is where where is your metaphysics in scripture? Like like where's your logic in scripture? Like where's your science in scripture? Where's your like the your potato salad recipe in scripture? Who cares? Who uh, cares? Also, a lot of those things you have to presuppose before reading scripture. Exactly. Like, whoa, where's where's your uh, English language dictionary in scripture, dummy? Where's like, your Where's your Greek grammar dictionary? In this is scripture? so true. Where's your Greek grammar dictionary in scripture? Like, you, it, this is I I just uh and actually people people are taking pictures, um because I I go to a place called the Davenin Institute. That's where I learn. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of Protestants. And I just take uh, took a class and it had to do with um, scriptural and natural law authority in uh, in Protestant thought. And it was an intensive class and they took pictures and stuff. And they're taking pictures, uh, sending pictures around. I saw a few people posting on Twitter like, like, ha, Christian Wagner with the, with the Protestants. He's a Protestant now. But no, fake. It's all fake. But all that's to say that that's not what any, any product like any Protestant before the year. I don't know, like. 1900 would recognize that's an idiotic argument to say oh where's your metaphysics in scripture guys it's something which is assumed in in like reading i mean come on now that's like asking where your logic is in scripture like oh you can't make arguments because there aren't the uh the eight rules of logic or it doesn't tell you how uh the differences between universals and particulars in uh, syllogism so you, you you just can't do logic like no that's stupid it's idiotic uh, christian please don't Please don't put my hand on a pike for this example, but I swear if James White uh, reads a particular part of the Bible where the sun is stopped in the middle of the day, he and he says, okay, well, what God did was he stopped the earth on his axis. I'm pretty sure he's not going to respond too kindly when somebody says, oh, where is your uh, heliocentrism in scripture? Where are you getting that in scripture? Because geocentrism is in scripture. That's why. I mean, yeah, I... I mean, if uh, James White wants to make that argument, he'd have to be committed to that. Okay. Any any final thoughts? Let's. Uh, we just hit two hours, so. No, I'm good. I I basically knew what was coming. It was basically a bunch of woe is me. Uh, they're make they're forcing me to submit to Th Thomas as my sole authority, and I can't read my Bible anymore, and it's so bad. Yes, yeah, my external authority, Saint Thomas that's uh, it's that's literally the whole thing i mean like no like there was there was absolutely no argumentation except like ah this doesn't seem like intuitive from scripture like well yeah a lot of things don't seem too intuitive from sacred scripture but like read one of our books and also oh well this uh this doesn't sound like my sort of tritheism to me i mean my trinitarianism to me <laughs> <laughs> there, there's that there's this idea that you know the persons of the trinity are just these three centers of consciousness rather than 
these three relations constituted by one the one sole essence of God who has one will and intellect. Yeah. Okay, well, I got to go catch dinner, so I'll see you later. See you later, man, and uh, catch you all later. Yep, and everybody watching, thank you for uh, for stopping by. Remember, subscribe, like, um, go to go to my website. Uh, just investigate, peruse everything I have to offer. And I will talk to you later. Remember, it's Trinity Tide, so we laud and venerate the sacred Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.